while back, took a trip to Israel, uh, and uh, there's, there's much about that trip that just sticks, has stuck with me, that resonates in my mind very vividly, powerful opportunities to see, uh, you know, the Holy Land and to experience um, where things happen that I've read about for so long. One of the places that we visited that did not stick with me the much was a place called Jacob's Well. Uh, and it's, it's the place where God led his people through Jacob and had a well for his livestock and his children to drink from. And I didn't think much about it at the time, uh, but I'm realizing uh, what a profound place that was. Jacob, it's, he's called the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. He had 12 sons, and each son uh, became a tribe of the people of Israel. And when they entered into the promised land, each tribe was allotted a certain amount of land in the promised land that became the nation of Israel. The Messiah is said has come from Abraham, Jacob, uh, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he's right in line with the Messiah, the chosen one, or Jesus. And eventually, like I said, the whole land, the promised land, was divided up into the 12 tribes of Jacob's son. So he was a He's a key figure, both of the people coming into the promised land and of the very Messiah. And through a process of sin and politics, the 12 tribes were divided into two groups. Uh, And this is what I see always happens. Sin always leads to politics. In other words, who's right and who's wrong, right? Right? And politics always leads to division, us against them. And I see that all the way back in Jacob's sons. Sin led to politics, which led to division. And so what ended up happening of the 12 tribes of Jacob's sons, in the entire land of Israel, you had 10 tribes who were in the north. And you had two tribes who were in the south, making the 12 tribes, but they were divided. There was a dividing line. And the northerners, 10 tribes, was called Israel, even though it was all the nation of Israel. And the southerners, two tribes, were called Judah. The capital in the northern 10 tribes was Samaria, even though God said that the capital for the people would be Jerusalem, but that was down in the south. And so as the northern ten tribes lived amongst themselves and the separation between the southern two tribes, they developed their own place of worship, their own style of worship. They developed their own identity. Though they were one people, 12 tribes, there were two groups. And in 722 B.C., Assyria, the foreign nation of Assyria, came down into the northern ten tribes of Israel, the northerners, and invaded the land, took many of the people of the north into captivity, and imported a bunch of Assyrians into the northern part of the promised land where the ten tribes used to be in order to replace their history, replace their heritage, to intermarry with the people, and to create a different people group. That was in 722 B.C. So fast forward about 750 years, and you have Jesus, who is now an adult in his public ministry. 
Jesus, who was from the tribes of the south, the Jews, the tribes of the south, considered the northerners, the Samaritans, half-breeds and dogs and dirty and shameful because they were the byproduct of a people that came from another country and to their land and married and set up their own culture. And there were great injustices done. The south against the north and the north against the south, against both people groups. Though they were part of the same country, there was great division, there was great divide, great injustice, great brutality. Because why? Because they would each look at each other and say, you're from the other side of the tracks. You look different. You talk different. You got a different tradition, different history, different, different hurts, different dialects. You're different. And this was the cultural scenario of Jesus' time, the Jews and the Samaritans. Into this situation is John 4. And if you have a Bible and brought one with you, I want you to go to John 4. It's on the screen. It's also on the app. Everything we look at will be on the app today. So if you have the app, you can follow along with us there. I grew up hearing this passage of John 4 from a very limited church perspective. And I heard that the power behind John 4 was that the fact that Jesus talked to this woman at a well. Because in those days, they say men didn't interact with women very much. Matter of fact, if you were married and you were an upstanding Jew in that culture, and you were walking this way with the fellas, and your wife was walking on the other side of the street this way, you wouldn't acknowledge her. You just continue on with the fellas. And so though there was some of that uh, part of this culture... Honestly, it wasn't that strange that Jesus would talk to a woman because he talked to many women. He healed women. He interacted with Matter of fact, he had his 12 disciples, but as part of that group of 12, there were a lot of women that were a part of that group. And some of his most earnest, strongest supporters were women. His, some of the ones who financed his ministry were women. And so it wasn't really that uncommon that he would talk to a woman. But that was the church that I grew up in. They also would say that the power behind John 4 was the fact that a Jew talked to a Samaritan. And though that's true, I just didn't understand the significance of it. And as I've studied it, and I've listened to others of other churches and understandings, there's a lot in this passage that I've missed. So what does John 4 have to do with the Lord's Prayer? Because that's really what we've been talking about in this series, how to pray. The disciples asked Jesus one thing to teach them, and it was how to pray. So what does John 4 have to do with Jesus' teaching on prayer? Well, I think it has a lot to do with it if we think about it. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 6. In this manner, therefore pray. Our Father in heaven. Whose Father is this? My daddy or is it ours? It's ours. Right off the bat, Jesus is making a statement. He's not mine. He's ours. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, your stuff comes before my stuff. Your kingdom before my kingdom. Your way before my way. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then what you say? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
Let me be very clear about this. God never leads someone into sin. The Bible's very clear about that. If God never leads someone into sin, why then does Jesus teach us to pray, lead us not into temptation? Because there's a difference. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says this, Therefore there is now no, no con- or, there is no temptation taking you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful and just and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can handle handle, and will with the temptation make a way out that you'll be able to handle it. So there's no temptation that we're going to face that isn't common to everybody. And God doesn't lead us into temptation so that will sin. The Bible's very clear. So then, why does the Bible tell us that the Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted? The Spirit doesn't lead us to temptation in order for us to fail and sin. But he does lead us to the places of sin so that it can be overcome. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Not so that Jesus would sin, but that so Jesus could face temptation and conquer, deliver, overcome it, defeat it. And similarly, Jesus leads his disciples into places of temptation and places where they have to face sinfulness, not so that they will fail under its weight, but so that they will stand up under it and defeat it. Notice Jesus teaches in Matthew 6, deliver us from evil. How are you going to be delivered from evil if you don't face it? Defeat it. So what is the evil we must be delivered from these days? Well, apparently there's quite a bit of it going around. Let me acknowledge this, that what we're seeing in our land is a very complex and oftentimes confusing issue that leads to great divisiveness. And let me just share with you how divisive and confusing it is. Did, have any of you heard of this last week? There was a white sports announcer that was asked how he felt about Black Lives Matter movement. And his response was, all lives matter. And because the response was, all lives matter, he was fired from his job. Can you imagine? Making the assertion that all lives matter. And because you say all lives matter, you lose your job. Can you imagine? White broadcaster. You want to know the problem with that? The problem with that is when white people get more outraged that a white man lost his job than a black man lost his life. That's the problem. If there's something in here that when you hear that a white man says all lives matter and loses his job and something in here you say that's not right, that's unjust, that's ridiculous and that response in here was greater than a black man losing his life, maybe that's part of the problem. Do you understand? Now don't worry. I am an equal opportunity offender this morning. And there's great offense to go around to everybody. And if you're offended that I said that you were part of the problem for your reaction that a white man lost his job, then good, you should be offended. And I mean, no apologies for your offense. You should be offended because that's offensive. However, let me also address facts. 
of police killing unarmed suspects. And this has been going around a lot, and I just want to under... So they're all talking about the same thing. It amazes me that our country has not kept statistics until 2015 in an official database about police shootings nationally. And according to that database, that has just, it's pretty new. In 2019, there were 1,004 police killings. 802 shootings where the race of the officer and the suspect were both recorded. And of those, 371 were white and 236 were black. And the vast, the vast majority of those suspects were armed, not unarmed. And according to that database... In 2019, there were 10 cases of an unarmed black suspect who was killed by police of all races, not just white police, but black police and Hispanic police officers. Interestingly, there were 20 white unarmed suspects, unarmed suspects killed by police that same year. But of those 10 cases of an unarmed black individual killed by police, five of those officers uh, were attacked by the subject before that suspect was shot. Not with a gun, but with a vehicle, with another item who were being attacked. In one of the cases, it is reported that the suspect went for the officer's gun in the scuffle. The gun went off. They were killed. That's what the report says. Whether it's true or not, that's at least what the, that's all we can go on. So there were four other cases of an unarmed black person killed by police. In two of those four, the officers involved were criminally charged. That means two of them were not. Now, maybe the other two should have been. And maybe justice does not go far enough. But we have to be very careful when we buy into the idea that people are being hunted down and killed. We don't want to talk about people being hunted down and killed. Talk about police officers in that same year, 2019. 48 police officers were killed by criminals. That's more than all unarmed suspects of all races combined. Here's my point. Human life is no longer sacred. It's no longer sacred. Now, because I'm an equal opportunity offender this morning, let me offend the church. Because the church has not dealt with this spiritually nor biblically well at all. And while most people, not all, while most people in church would not claim that they are racist... However, most people in church feel either they're either just unaware and ignorant of it or they feel unable to deal with racist systems and institutions. For instance, Dallas Theological Seminary, one of the best seminaries in the nation, training people how to minister the mercy and grace and justice of Almighty God, His kingdom on earth until the early 1980s did not allow African Americans to go to school at their seminary. And so what you have is a bunch of white men sitting around learning that they are made in the image of God. Do you see the problem? And most white people would say, institutional racism, this is ridiculous. This isn't the 1800s. Look, they let me in the seminary. Oblivious to the reality. Christian radio in Southern California 
Dr. Tony Evans, who was the first African-American to graduate from Dallas Theological Seminary after it was integrated in the 80s, had a radio broadcast called The Urban Alternative, and he wanted to get on the airwaves of Christian radio in Southern California. And in approaching his organization, the radio stations in Southern California in the 80s about his program being on air, he was told by the radio stations, we cannot put you on air because our white Christian constituency would revolt. James Dobson, the leader of Focus on the Family, intervened. Why? Because he was a white man with authority who exercised his authority to bring equality and justice. And Tony was on the air. And eternity's been changed. So when those of my persuasion sit back and say, I don't know what the problem is, it's pretty equal. No, it oftentimes is not. Those with influence must use influence to make sure that God's kingdom really is in existence. Now I agree. No justice, no peace. But you better be very careful because the Bible is a double-edged sword and it also says no forgiveness, no peace. And you can only go back and live in your history and your people's history for so long until you are incarcerated by that same history you're trying to avoid. I told you, equal offender this morning. This is not a spiritual issue. I'm oh, sorry, this is a spiritual issue. It's not a governmental issue. This is a spiritual issue. This is not a governmental issue. And a spiritual issue will not be solved until the spiritual authority that God left on the earth exercises its authority. Psalm 89, 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, O God. Righteousness and justice. You can't have one without the other. You do not have righteousness where there is no justice, and you cannot have justice where there is no righteousness. They are hand in glove. For justice to be pervasive, righteousness must prevail. What is righteousness? Righteousness is the visible rule and reign of the kingdom of God over every aspect of life. And justice will never prevail until righteousness does first. And likewise, when righteousness prevails, justice will be produced. There is no government, institution, system, or reformation that will solve this issue. It is only the church and the authority that God has given the church in the world. Because it and it alone is connected to the throne of God that is set on the foundation of righteousness and justice. Do you understand? So, let's understand our own subtle bias. Let's understand the inequality of value of human life. And let's go after the real culprit and the real cure. You with me? And so that was the introduction to my message. <laughs> I don't feel like that was a message itself. John 4. Now when Jesus learned 
that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making of baptizing more disciples than John. Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Jesus is in the south, the southern part, a place called Judea. And he wants to head up north to the northerners, a place called Galilee. And to do that, he had to go through the middle part, which was called Samaria. Now, hearken back to what I just told you about the Samaritans and how they came to be. This is the part of town you didn't go into. And he had to go through Samaria, and to go through Samaria, he had to go through a town called Sychar. Now, he could have taken the coastal route because there was an international trade route that went along the coast and he could have gone that way or he could have gone around the other side. There was another pathway to get up to, to the northern area going the other way. He didn't have to go through the middle. Matter of fact, if you were a good Jew, you didn't go that way. Like, you didn't go down to Fulton Street. You're like, you might go to River Park, but you don't go... You don't go that way, and you certainly don't go up to Chowchilla. You just kind of stay somewhere in between. You understand what I'm saying? But he chose to go right through the middle of them, right through a town called Sychar. Good Jews didn't do that, but Jesus did, and his disciples were on edge. And you know exactly what's this like. You know what it's like to be in one of those parts of town and the sun's going down and you want to get out. Go somewhere where you're comfortable. You know exactly what this is like. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Remember Jacob? Remember that well? His well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? little editorial comment. His disciples had gone into town to buy food. Where was Jesus? Where was he? Where was he? It, it says, that's locationally, Okay, if you can't get this, we got a real problem. It says he sat down by what? Let me make it plain. A well. Why did he sit down by Jacob's well? It was more to do with wanting shade or a drink. Remember, Jacob was the father of the tribes of Israel, and the Samaritans still claimed that they were part of his offspring. They said, we belong here. Jesus went to a place where he could find common ground. He went to the place of common ground. Jesus was intentional, and he did not avoid people different than him. He went to the one place they could both find agreement, because honestly, there wasn't much agreement between them, but there was this one thing they could agree on. Jesus also know where his disciples were. Where were they? He sent them away. Why? Because they weren't ready for this. They weren't ready for what was about to go down. Here's what I know. Sometimes you've got to get stupid away from you so you can do the Father's business. Sometimes you've got to get ignorant away. 
so you can do what God has asked you to do. And so he's at this well. And he says, give me a drink. And the woman, the Samaritan woman says, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? Again, another editorial comment. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. How did she know he was a Jew? Well, apparently he looked different. He talked different. He had a different accent and dialect. He looked like something different than her. Note this. Jesus didn't change who he was to interact with her. Jesus didn't stop being a Jew in order to find common ground with a Samaritan. Jesus didn't apologize for being a Jew. And didn't expect her to apologize for who she was neither. It's who we are. She says, how are you going to ask me for a drink? What's implied in that statement when it says Jews don't associate with Samaritans, the implication is this, the truth is this, Jews wouldn't even use a cup if a Samaritan had used it. That's how great the divide was. I want you to notice something. Don't miss this. Before Jesus said anything about his divinity, he spoke volumes through his sociology. Get that. Before Jesus said anything about his divinity, he spoke volumes through his sociology. Who and how he lived and who he, how, how, who he intersected with. He met her on common ground and drank from her cup. See, the problem is, there's a lot of people we want in heaven, we just don't want to associate with on earth. You realize how bad? Realize how bass backwards that is? How are you going to tell someone about Jesus in heaven that you don't want to drink from their cup? Jesus was willing to listen to the Samaritan story, even though it wasn't his story. Even though there was a lot of stuff out of that story that may or may not have been legit, it was her story. And Jesus' sociology gave credibility to his theology before he ever said a word. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He's kind of talking in code. He's intimate. He's hinting at what's to come. And she doesn't really get it. She says, sir, you have nothing to draw with in the well's deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself and did also uh, as did also his sons and his livestock? She said, look, are you greater than Jacob? Like, he's our, he's our earthly father, but it came from the heavenly father. Let, let Jacob here to this well. Are you greater than him? And because she invokes the father, see, Jesus was kind of playing nice for a moment. But the moment she invoked the father, Jesus says, all right, then it's time to get busy. Once the father's invoked, it's time to do business. You want to talk about the father? I'll tell you about the father. And Jesus goes on and tells her. Everyone who drinks of this water is 
they're going to get thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of uh, water welling up to eternal life. He starts getting theological. He starts getting doctrine. He starts talking about salvation. You want to talk about the Father? I'll tell you the way of the Father. The way of the Father is through me. And he goes on through verses 15 through 24. And he just lays out this whole thing before about who he is and who she is. And he, he tells her, he says, why don't you call your husband? Let's have a talk with him too. And she says, well, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right. you got five of them. And the guy you're with now isn't even your husband. So why don't you go get your baby daddies and let's have a conversation. It's exactly what he's saying. He said, there'll come a time when we'll worship. We won't worship him in ritual and with lip service. We'll worship him in spirit and truth. And have you, have you ever been in those conversations where it's just too much, you don't know how to answer? And you just kind of go, I don't know. God will work it out. That's exactly what she says. I know, I know, I know. Messiah, the Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll, he'll, he'll explain it all. Have you ever been in that spot where you just didn't know what to say? You're like, oh, I don't know. It's too big. Like, God will handle it. And Jesus like, I am the one. Like, I am the one who is sorting this out right before your eyes. Are you blind? And I love this part. Verse 27, just then. Whenever the Bible says just then, something like that, it's kind of God winking at us. Because there's no coincidence. Just at that moment, his disciples returned. Because where were they? They were gone buying food just then. They come back surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one would ask, what are you doing? Like, Why are you doing this? What do you want from her? Have you ever been in that situation where, like, it's so uncomfortable, you don't know what to say? You just kind of look around at everybody else, hoping someone will say something. And you're all kind of feeling it, but you don't want to be the one. That's exactly what's going on here. They're so freaking on edge. Like, well, this is not like, oh. Why? Because he's talking to a woman? See, we miss it. I told you earlier, he talked to many women all kinds of times. He had healed them. They were part of his group. They were funding his ministry. The point is not that he was talking to women. The point is that he was talking to a Samaritan, one of them. She was a different race. She was a different ethnicity, different background, different culture. Had this whole big, long sob story about everybody had done her wrong. See, his disciples weren't ready for it yet. That's why he had to remove them. They weren't ready to confront their own sin yet. So Jesus led them to it, not into sin, but into the face of it so that they could beat it, not just outside themselves, but within themselves first. And then this woman got happy, leaving her water jar there. She just, she like left her stuff and took off running. And she went back to the town and said to the people, come, see the man who told me everything I did and everybody I ever did. And could this be the, I mean, that's what she, that's what she was. As, anyway, could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way to him. They're like, You're, this is wild. 
And they make their way. And they come out and see Jesus. And while that's going on, verses 31 through 34, Jesus is with the disciples and like, hey, you want the sandwich we got you? He's like, no, I'm not hungry. They're like, well, who brought you food? He's like, but you guys just don't get it, man. I got food that you don't even, you're not even aware of. And then he tells them, don't you guys have this saying that it's four more months until the harvest? Don't you say that? Well, I tell you, open your eyes. Open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. When he says, open your eyes and look at the fields, what was happening? The Samaritans were coming towards them. They say, they're ready. Jesus said, they're ready. It's ripe. It has been prepared. The opportunity is before you. The fields are ripe and here they come. They're ripe for harvest. Jesus says, look, them, they are the harvest. And they are the work that we should be about. And you've lived with this dividing line in your lives your whole life. And how will they be harvested if not for the harvesters? And then he says, I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work. You didn't have to do it. You didn't have to bleed over it. You didn't have to march over it. Others have done the hard work, but you've reaped the benefits of their labor. You should be reaping the benefits of the generations that have gone before you that have put in the hard work and made this possible. But you sit with closed eyes, Jesus says, ignoring your work. Instead, you avoid and you continue to ignore those who are different than you, who have a different story than you, who have different hurts than you. And you discredit their story and you downgrade their history and you discredit their very selves. See, Jesus set them up. To deliver them from evil. Not just out there. But right here. He set them up to confront sin. Just not sin out there. But sin and prejudice here. Look at verse 39 and 41. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed him because of this woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him. They urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. Because of his words, many more became believers. How quickly it turned from don't drink from my cup to a two-day sleepover. How quickly. Listen, from adversary to friend shouldn't take 240 years to mend. Do you understand what I'm saying? From adversary to friend should not take 240 years to mend. It happened in an instant in a conversation with the Son of God. This is not a government reform issue, though government needs to be reformed. But it won't be mended by governmental intervention because unregenerated hearts cannot usher in the kingdom of God. It will only be fixed by the person and the presence of Jesus, by the full rule and reign of the kingdom of God over every aspect of my life and your life. 
Now, may I share my message with you this morning? That was introduction. Now again, I'm an equal opportunity offender, so just understand. What this means is that the kingdom of God must rule over every other way we classify ourselves. In the kingdom. Hear me. In the kingdom, it is illegitimate for me to say that I am a white Christian. In the kingdom. In the kingdom, it is illegitimate for another to say they are a black Christian. Here's why. If I say I am a white Christian, English 101, what is the noun in that sentence? Christian. If I say I'm a white Christian, what is the adjective in that sentence? White. What is the role of the adjective to do to the noun? Modify it. The moment I say I am a white Christian, my Christianity must be modified to fit my whiteness. If you say you are a black Christian, your Christianity must be modified to fit your blackness. Anytime you modify, Christianity is no longer Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? Every person we see that is different than us makes up the beautiful kaleidoscope image of Almighty God. Deliver me, Father, from the evil that is in me. God wants to look at all of our colors for all of eternity, just like we are. Listen, I told my boys this this week. I said, the color of my skin is not my sin, and I will not apologize for it. And the color of your skin is not your sin. Never apologize for it. All I know is this. White ain't right if it ain't biblical. And black ain't beautiful if it ain't biblical. What we need is unity of purpose, not uniformity of persons. White people, you get this? Be as different as God made you to be. It was his choice to make you just like you are with your particular hue and color. You'll be as different as you want to be as long as that difference is not an excuse to conflict with the rule and the reign of God. But we are Christ followers first. As Galatians 3 says, there is now neither Jew nor Greek. Here's what I know. If enough of us were Christian before we were white... If enough were Christian before they were black, if enough were Christian before they were Republican, if enough were Christian before they were Democrats, maybe, just maybe, we'd have the kingdom of God show up in our midst, but not until then. Deliver us from evil. we got to get this. Our sociology must give credibility to our theology because for too long our sociology has discredited our theology. We talk about one God and being one in Christ. Meanwhile, our sociology has said the complete opposite thing. And until our sociology gives credibility to our theology, our theology is worthless. George Floyd's life mattered. David Dorn's life mattered. 77-year-old black police chief retired, guarding his friend's shop, shot by riot. His life mattered. 
Max Brewer's life mattered. Black police officers run over by rioters, rioting for justice that even can be imagined. Run over in Las Vegas fighting for his life. His life mattered. Here's the truth, and here's what is so dangerous. It's dangerous anymore to preach the Bible. You preach the Bible outside of the church, and the world will get after you because you don't understand and you're a bigot. You preach the Word of God in the church, and you get railroaded as well because the, the people don't stand for the Bible anymore. And what I'm saying is this. All human life, human life is created in the image of God. So however you classify human life, it is always a subset of all life in God's image. Classify it however you want as long as you understand that it's simply a subset of all human life in God's image. That means even the life, get this, of the unborn. Human life. The sanctity of it. The sacredness of it. Now, it is true that some lives have experienced much greater inequality, without a doubt. And those things must be addressed specifically. And that's why our theology must rule over our anthropology. Otherwise, it means nothing. And if our sociology doesn't give credibility to our theology, we only highlight our humanity, which discredits his divinity. Human life has got to become sacred again. And that's not going to happen by government reform. Just, I'm going to get as far removed from the ranchos as I can right now and give you some statistics to highlight how not sacred human life is. Some of you have heard these stats before. Memorial Day weekend in Chicago, 10 African-Americans were killed by drive-by shootings. A 72-year-old man was shot in the face by a gunman who opened fire 12 rounds into a house at random. Two 19-year-old women, as they sat in their parked car, were shot. A 16-year-old boy was stabbed with his own knife all over Memorial Day weekend. Just this last weekend, 80 people in Chicago were shot by a drive-by shooting. 12 of them died. Black men and women die by homicide at a rate eight times greater than those of white and Hispanics combined. And you can come up with whatever political agenda you want to come up with at the end of the day. It's because human life is not sacred nor sanctified any longer. And it is no surprise whatsoever for me that when our culture has been so comfortable killing babies in the womb that it hasn't spilled over outside of the womb because human life is no longer sacred. The church must lead. The church must lead the charge in valuing human life, all of human life. And sociology must always give credibility to our theology. We've got to understand this, that if we don't value human life in our culture, that those with authority will never value human life or those under their authority, whether it's police officers over civilians or moms over unwanted babies. 
And so the question that every one of us has got to ask and answer for ourselves, every one of us, not pushing off on the government, not pushing off on the state, not pushing off on the nation, not pushing off on the White House, in your house, the questions that have got to be answered, in your house, not the White House, not the State House, in your house, the ones that have to be answered, and then come in line biblically with the rule and the reign of God over all aspects of life is what bridges are you crossing? What relationships are you building? Where's the cup that you're sharing with someone different than you? In the Bible, the cup, the Bible talks about the cup of fellowship and the cup of suffering. And so when we talk about sharing a cup with someone different than us, what we're talking about is sharing the cup of fellowship with someone different and sharing the cup of suffering with someone different than us. Not arguing about the validity of it, arguing about the experience of it, just sharing in the cup of it. Rick, come up here, because if you don't come up here, I'm going to keep going for another hour. Where are the cups that we're sharing with each other that are different than us? When we start crossing the bridges that we have not crossed yet, when we start relationships with people we've not made relationships with yet, when we start sharing the cup of fellowship and the cup of suffering with people whose stories are different than ours that we might even vehemently disagree with, maybe then, maybe then, perhaps then, we will start valuing the place of human life in this world. Maybe then when those things happen, maybe then some votes might change. Maybe then when those things start happening, some policy might change. Maybe then when those things start happening, some perspectives might change. And maybe then when those things start happening, just maybe the kingdom of God will come in our midst. But not until then. And so our prayer is, God, lead us not into temptation. Into the temptation that would destroy me. Lead me to the place where I will find victory over sin and evil that is first within me before it's outside of me. God, deliver us from evil. God, deliver us from evil. God, deliver us from evil. God, deliver us from evil inclinations. And God, deliver us from evil legislations. God, deliver us from evil. God, deliver us from evil. God, deliver us from evil. God, deliver us from the evil of my own ignorance. May your kingdom come on earth. Close your eyes for just a moment. Jesus, my prayer in this moment is that you would authenticate your word that I preach by signs and wonders. That you would authenticate your word, not me, not the message, but you would authenticate your word by signs and wonders. The signs and wonders of people crossing bridges they've not crossed before. The signs and wonders of people drinking from cups they've not drunk before, of signs and wonders, of relationships being built with people they've not built relationships with before, of signs and wonders, of your kingdom coming to earth. Let this be our prayer, flip side. May your kingdom come on earth in my day. May your will be done on earth in my day. Forgive us 
Forgive us first. Forgive me. Lead me into the place and the face of evil and sin, not so that I find I fail in it, but so that I find victory through you over it. Deliver us from evil, Almighty God. For yours is the kingdom, and yours is the glory, and yours is the power forever and ever and ever. Amen, says his church. Now here's the thing. Get this. He has made it so easy for us to love him. May we make it easy to love others. Let's sing.